The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy and delight of having been adopted by your sovereign grace into your family. And you've put into us as your children the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you that in our society and our culture today is Father's Day. We're grateful for the way that the scripture has instructed us of your perfect fatherhood, that you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that you sent your only begotten son to bring us to God the Father. That Jesus himself told parables that expounded to us your transcendent fatherly love. You are the father of the prodigal son waiting patiently for the sinner to come home. And when he does, you run to him and welcome him and embrace him and put a robe on him and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and welcome him with a feast. You are a gracious and a loving father. You protect us by your commands. You discipline us and chastise us. We all of us have had earthly fathers that disciplined us for a short time as they thought best. And Lord, we thank you for the ministrations of fathers in our church. We thank you for godly fathers that do Discipline their children that raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray that you give them strength for that ministry. Whatever stage that they're at in their fatherhood, Lord, could be newborn babies just recently brought home from the hospital. Give young fathers wisdom and perseverance to care for their infant sons and daughters and to work with their wives in caring for all of their basic physical needs. And some are fathers of of children, young children, single digits that are growing and learning and being educated and struggling to do right and to avoid the wrong. Pray that you give fathers of growing children patience, perseverance, godly wisdom to know when to pour out goodness and gentleness and when to use um, strong discipline. Pray for fathers of teens uh, as they are in the final stage of that kind of that pattern of parenting of minors still in the home, but about to be adults, about to make decisions for themselves. Give fathers of, of teens patience and wisdom. And then those that are empty nesters, those whose children are grown, give older fathers wisdom to keep speaking wisdom into the lives of their grown children as they make their own decisions and as their own families are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We thank you for fathers and for fatherhood. But Lord, we look to you as the perfect father. And we know that you love us like a father loves his children. And we look forward to seeing you face to face someday through your, the blood of your only begotten son. Now Lord, already this morning we have sung a prayer that you would show us Christ through the preaching of the word. I pray that you would do that now. Pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit now to illuminate the word. That we might see in Job chapter 28 the perfections of Christ that we might understand this message, this chapter. Lord, we know you say in Scripture that all of us has an anointing who are born again. We have an anointing 
from the Holy One through the Holy Spirit, and we already know the truth. Lord, that doesn't mean we don't need good teaching and preaching. I think what that means is that we will recognize the truth when we hear it, and that there are many basic truths and even advanced truths that we already have understood. So, Lord, expand our knowledge now. Strengthen me to preach only what is helpful and true and right. And, Lord, I pray that this chapter might lead us to Christ, might lead us to the greatness and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Job 28, and we come to a magnificent chapter, a poem, or a hymn to wisdom. This chapter will celebrate God's wisdom over against man's science by using an extended illustration of mining, mining. It will say, men know how to mine precious materials from the earth, but we don't know where to find wisdom. Now, the question that's in front of me as I continue to walk through this complex, this deep book, is what function does this chapter have in the book of Job? Why did the Holy Spirit move that this be part of this book here and now? What, what purpose does it serve? Well, at the simplest level, it gives us all a break. I don't know about you, but I feel a need for a bit of a break in the book of Job. I mean, it's been 27 chapters of sorrow and distress and misery, of Job, a man, a righteous and a godly man who had wave upon wave of affliction and trial that came upon him, who lost much of his wealth in a single day, who lost all 10 of his children in that same single day, who then subsequently lost his health to a terrible disease and was greatly afflicted, and then for all these chapters, through chapter 27, we've had a cycle of discussions and debates by his friends who have come to comfort him in some way, and you know what that's been like, you know, one of those with friends like that and who needs enemies kind of thing, but it's been very distressing and difficult as again and again, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad have unfolded the same basic theology, you, Job, are suffering because you are a wicked man. You're suffering greatly because your wickedness is great. If you would just confess and renounce your wickedness, the suffering would go away. And so how does Job 28 fit into that? Well, I think that we should look on Job 28 as part of Job's final defense of his own righteousness. Job 27.1 says, Job continued his discourse Job 29.1 says, Job continued his discourse. So it's kind of right in the middle, it seems, of a section of Job's statement. So it's best to just, I think, read it that way. I've said again and again, it really doesn't matter to me who says what, ultimately. I think if we do know, we can line it up with what we know about that person and their personality and try to understand their words. But it really is the Holy Spirit that's speaking this book to us, and he has a purpose. And we have to look to that and understand it. So, what does Job 28 say? Well, I've already given you a brief kind of summary. It is, man knows how to mine precious materials from the earth, but we don't know where to find wisdom. That's point one. Then in verse 23 and 28, it will say, true wisdom comes from God alone. God is the only one who knows where wisdom can be found and who can teach it. And he does teach us wisdom, and it culminates in a simple, clear statement in verse 28 this is wisdom, 
to fear God and to shun evil is understanding. Well, that's the whole book. Now, how a whole chapter. How does Job 28 fit into the book of Job? Well, it's part of Job's defense because of verse 28. Verse 28, to fear God and to shun evil is wisdom. But the very first thing we find out about Job at the beginning of the book, this is the exact description of Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That should look very familiar to you. So, Job is a wise man. He's saying this about himself. I am not who you say I am. I'm not a wicked man. I fear God and shun evil. Now, I'm going to unfold that and show how clearly it lines up with Job's life in chapter 31. And we're not going to go to 31, but I'll just tell you, that is his ethic. That's how he lives his life. Well, how does Job 28 fit into the Bible, and then how does it speak to us? Well, we've seen in general with the book of Job, there's timeless wisdom here, but it's a shadow compared to the full reality we find in Christ. We get the idea of good, better, best, in the unfolding revelation of God. And so while it is true that wisdom is to fear God and shun evil, there's a better wisdom than that. That is true, but it's not sufficient. I would say, along with that, not either or, but both and, along with fearing God and shunning evil, is the delight and the joy and the love that comes in a relationship with God, where God becomes our treasure. God becomes our gold, worth more than anything we could ever find in this world. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he sold all of the material treasures he found on earth and bought that field, and the treasure is Christ. And Christ gives us God. And so if you put those together, to fear God and shun evil, plus to delight in God and yearn for him and find pleasure in him. Now that's wisdom. And we find all of that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so there's the sermon. You can go rest now or kind of take the rest. I'm gonna go into a lot of details. Seems beneficial to do so, but you have the overview. I guess if I could just apply it to you, I want you to know, just look at where we're at, where we live, what our setting is here. We're in one of the smartest places in the country. There are a lot of different ways to to measure that, but there's just a lot of PhDs around here. There's a lot of high-tech companies around here. There's a lot of intelligent people who take human technology and human wisdom and do amazing things with it. We have high-tech companies right near us that are doing semiconductor research. We have software companies. I guess Apple's gonna come and build a big campus here and do what they do. You've got pharmaceutical research. We've got all kinds of amazingly intelligent, smart people doing amazingly intelligent, smart things. But those who are not yet converted are not wise. They're not wise. And they need us and the other godly people, other churches in this area, to tell them to flee their foolishness and to find true wisdom in Christ. So that we would not be overwhelmingly amazed with human wisdom and human ingenuity and human technology. Not intimidated at all by that, but say, can I point you to true wisdom? The wisdom is Christ. 
And beyond that, I want each of you who are Christians who came in here today, born again, to go home thanking God that he made you wise, that he won you out of your foolishness into a lasting wisdom through Christ. Just thank God for that. Okay, so now let's look at some details. In Job 28, 1 through 11, this section celebrates the staggering levels of human ingenuity found in mining. Maybe you've never thought much about mining before, but that's what's going on in this chapter. These 11 verses talk about mining. Human technology in general is a stunning marvel. It far exceeds the capacities of even the most extraordinary animals and birds, as we shall see. There's a massive, almost immeasurable gap between the intellectual prowess of human beings and every other creature. Human beings, therefore, can do amazing things by virtue of their brain power. Now, the example that Job uses in this chapter is the extreme complexity of mining. But as we shall see, human ingenuity, technology, science as we know it, is not ultimate wisdom. We may be able to extract gold and gemstones and other precious things from the depths of the earth, but we cannot trade that gold and those gems and those precious things for true wisdom. So however far human science, human wisdom, human technology and ingenuity takes us, it's going to fall far short of the wisdom that God yearns to work within human hearts. And a lot of that wisdom comes through suffering. Suffering makes us wise. Job feared God and shunned evil before any of this happened. But he feared God more profoundly after God showed up and talked to him at the end of the book. And so whatever level of fearing God and shunning evil you may have in your life, you could have more, should have more. Now let's walk through the details of how this chapter celebrates human skill in mining, human ingenuity in mining. So the existence of rare and valuable materials is a feature of planet Earth. And it was woven into the physical creation that God made, and it's described very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. You remember how there was a river that flowed from the Garden of Eden, and it broke off into four headwaters of four rivers, and one of those rivers was the Pishon River. And it says if you were to follow the Pishon River out from the Garden of Eden, you would come to the land of Havilah, where there is gold and onyx. So very early in the book, we've got this idea of precious materials. And throughout the history of human society, gold has played a major factor in commerce and in wars and in conquest and all kinds of things because of its attributes. Gold is precious because it's malleable, easily meltable, formable, shapeable, and it's incorruptible, it doesn't rust, and it's rare. So as with any economic issue, you've got the law of supply and demand. It's it's valuable, but rare. And so Job 28 describes the extreme efforts men have gone to, to draw precious materials from below the surface of the earth. Now the history of mining must be fascinating. When did people realize that these precious materials could only be brought forth into the light of day by extreme efforts down into the dark, deep, dark recesses of the earth? Perhaps early on, men found caves. And you know how men are. They just want to explore them. 
hey, there's a deep, dark hole. I'd like to go into it. I mean, what's up with some people? But that's how they are. And so they would get torches and they would go in there. Maybe they're looking for some water or I don't know what, just that sense of adventure. And in the flickering light of the torch, they see some glitter along the wall, silver maybe, or they find some vein somewhere of silver or gold. And then they they kind of chunk it out and bring it out into daylight and start looking at it. In the course of time, they learn how to process it. And so in Genesis 4, we have a man uh, called Tubal-Cain, who it says in Genesis 4.22, forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Forged them. So that's just technology of learning how to deal with different types of materials that come from the earth. Tubal-Cain seems to have been the first blacksmith, or at least He's the first one mentioned in the Bible. He's learning to work metals like iron and bronze. Given that he's also in the lineage of Cain and a son of Lamech who delighted in being able to wreak vengeance on his enemies, some of this blacksmithing must have been used for forging weapons. Herein lies a big part of the problem of man's ingenuity. Man is brilliant in science, but then he uses his his discoveries to make better and more destructive weapons by which he can kill his fellow man and take over his property, his farms. So mankind learns how to do things, but not why or why not to do certain things. Thus, to man's amazing brain is given a low level of wisdom that makes him vastly superior to all animals and other creatures, but man's essential wickedness and foolishness since the fall of Adam makes that low-level technological wisdom actually often damaging or destructive. Mining is also very dangerous. You could imagine some expeditions going to various hot, dry places where certain things were found. And the people have to go down into the depths of the earth. And it would be maybe slaves that would be forced to do this. And so you get this economic disparity between the mine owners and the mine workers. And all of these kinds of things go on. And it must have been from a very early stage. Under the hard, rocky earth, the ground had to be essentially assaulted to pry loose its riches. It was a forceful, violent effort. It was deadly dangerous. In some mining endeavors, a large fire, perhaps, would be kindled in the shaft or tunnel, which heated the rock to high temperatures. Then cold water was poured on the superheated rock, causing it to crack. Chunks of rock then fell down, and the miners could go down to the bottom of the hole and pick them up and bring those rocks up into the daylight where they could be processed. All right, so that's the nature of Mining in general, what we know about it. Let's look at the words, what Job actually says. First of all, he introduces the topic in verse 1 and 2. There is a mine for silver in a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. So those words are why we're talking about mining today. That's what the text talks about. That's what we're talking about. And so it's about mining. It talks about the challenges of the search for precious metals, the need for Light, torches, lanterns to push back the darkness. Look at verse 3. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. It stands to reason. It's away from the sunlight. It's deep down in the depths of the earth. There's no light down there. And so you need to bring torches. It mentions cutting the shaft in these austere places where no one can live or wants to live. 
and hanging on a trapeze to do the work. Verse 4. Far from where people dwell, he cuts the shaft. In places forgotten by the foot of man, far from men he dangles and sways. It speaks of the, these trapezes are, are there because the, the pit is deep. And halfway down on the wall, there's some precious materials they have to get off. So the only way they'll be able to work them is with ropes and platforms. And so they dangle and sway on those platforms. And then verse 5, the earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. You have, to, you have to do something to the walls, the rocky walls. You have to do something to get this stuff out. And so it speaks of the transformation of the earth, of holes that are dug that weren't there before by, again, human ingenuity. And the products are precious. Verse 6, sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. Now, mankind's technology makes him far superior to all other creatures. Look at verse 7 8. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. So these are pinnacle creatures. Birds of prey that soar high through the, through the, on the thermals, far above the surface of the earth. The eagles and falcons kind of rule the air. And then lions, the king of beasts, kind of rule the jungle. But these lordly creatures never do anything like this. It would never enter their little minds to do this. They're not found there. They know nothing about the subterranean regions of the earth. It is mankind with his relentless thirst for exploration and knowledge, his scientific mind, his sharp eye, his ability to reason and put together technologies that might have seemed to have nothing to do with mining, but then it's like, wait a minute, we could use that over here to do this. And so technologies are put together using iron tools forged in a smith to then mine other precious materials more efficiently. No eagle, no falcon, no lion, no chimpanzee, no really intelligent porpoise is thinking about any of these things. It also speaks of the violence of the effort. Look at verse 9 and 10. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays, the, lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. So the earth does not yield its precious treasures easily or free of, free of cost. In later years... Explosives, powerful explosives will be used to crack open the earth's treasure box. If you imagine the 19th century, sticks of TNT or other explosives used to open up the rocky mountain. As a result of that, human lives are lost. Mining accidents occur regularly. Massive boulders are broken loose and roll down and block the escape of miners that are further down below, and little by little their air goes away and then they die. The discovery of hidden treasures in verse 10 and 11, that's the whole point of all of this. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. So all of this technology, these amazing efforts are made for treasures, material, physical treasures brought up from the subterranean regions of the earth. They were hidden from view, but now the sunlight captures their glory and makes them glitter and shine. But, part two, true wisdom cannot be mined and it cannot be purchased. Verses 12 through 19. This is an analogy. It's really a parable almost, an illustration. 
uh, verse 12 through 14, this is the point of the chapter, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. So we humans know how to mine hidden treasures from the depths of the earth, but we don't know where to find wisdom. The true treasure is not found in that way. Human science cannot discover it. We are brilliant at technology, but fools toward God and eternity. Now, this very point is the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. For that reason, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe in Christ. And so, we're not going to find it, not even by philosophical reasoning or by inventing our own religions, we will not find eternal wisdom that way either. God has ordained that he must teach us wisdom or we will never learn it. We don't know where to find wisdom. Verse 12, where can wisdom be found? We can search for diamonds deep in the earth. We can discover sapphires. We can discover their stony fire and look at their, uh, their faceted brilliance. And it's going to captivate our eyes and our hearts and it will be the envy of our neighbors. But we are essentially fools because we can't find wisdom on the earth. We don't know where it dwells. Verse 13 and 14, look at it again. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not in me. Furthermore, what is wisdom worth? What is wisdom worth? What's the value of wisdom? Verses 15 through 19. We cannot set a market price on wisdom, and the things we got up, the glittery, shiny things we got up out of the depths of the earth, you can't trade that for wisdom. It's not for sale in that sense. Look at verses 15 through 19. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. So, some rich fool can be surrounded with the rarest gems and gold aplenty. But his re restless heart has led him to all manners of corruption and tyranny. His marriage is ruined. His children hate him. He has developed bitter enemies who would love to kill him and take all of his treasures from him. And he's mortal. He's not going to have them forever. When he dies, he'll give them to others. He'll let them go. He is a rich fool. And he cannot trade all his golds and jewels that he so prized for wisdom. Wisdom was far more valuable than all of those things he accumulated all along. But he didn't know it. He was allured. He was deceived by the glitter. He learned how to assault the earth for its hidden treasure but true treasure was truly hidden. Because true wisdom comes from God alone. It's a third point. True wisdom comes from God alone, verses 20 through 27. The hymn reveals the source of true wisdom, and that is God. Again, it asks the same question, verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? 
Then it presses deeper still, verse 21, 22. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. So if you could search every square inch of the surface of the earth, you would not find wisdom openly displayed anywhere. Like gold and diamonds, it starts out hidden from view. It is concealed treasure. But even if you could move all the mountains and probe down uh, to the realm of the grave, the deepest depths of the earth, the place where death and destruction live, the subterranean regions of the earth, if you could probe deeper and wider than any mining enterprise has ever reached, you still would not find wisdom. A rumor of wisdom, a whiff, an aroma of it would be around you the whole time through the whole search as though tantalizing you, enticing you, and tormenting you, but you wouldn't find it. You would know that something called wisdom existed, but it would elude you. So you are smart, you are a genius, with all manner of technological achievements, which have enriched you with the rarest gems the earth possessed. You uncover them all, and you have them on display in your dining halls, in your storehouses, but you are a fool, ruining your life, finding no lasting peace, no joy, no pleasure. You are a rich, intelligent, accomplished fool. And it would be good for you to know it. A rumor of existence, so the existence of wisdom is there, a whiff, but you cannot find it. But God knows where to find it. Look at verse 23 and 24. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God knows how to find what you're looking for. He understands the way to it. A journey to the place where it exists, where wisdom exists. But it's not a physical journey. It's a spiritual journey. God knows the way to wisdom, for he made the earth and sees every part of it. Nothing escapes his notice. And God's creation shows his credentials in giving wisdom. We're going to see this at the end of the book. The book of Job is saturated with what theologians call natural theology, the theology of nature, the theology of creation. Look at verses 25 through 27. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. Well, if man is wise in science, in studying the earth and its nature, and using its attributes, how much wiser is the God who made nature? We're always infinite steps behind him intellectually. He made it. We're studying it, using it. So God is the creator. We are the students of creation. God said, let there be light. Isaac Newton studied its attributes. God said, let there be gravity and time. Albert Einstein came up with some theories of relativity. God made all life. Biologists and botanists and zoologists analyze the species and study their natures and their habitats and genes and all that. But God made it all. The evidence of God's wisdom is everywhere around us. God is wise, says Job, in the force of the wind. He knows how much wind to use in every situation. Sometimes the light breath of a zephyr, barely able to cause leaves to flutter, cool the face of the laborer at the end of the day, and cause the 
aromas from the flowering trees, the magnolias, the lilac, to fill your nostrils. And it's very pleasant. But sometimes he un- unleashes gale force winds that rip and rend and topple and whip the ocean into a frothy frenzy. God wisely decides how to move the air in the atmosphere and what to do with weather. The weather patterns all over the earth as he alone sees fit and understands. God is wise also, says the text, in measuring out waters, the waters. There is enough water to cover the entire surface of the earth, so says the Bible. Noah's flood, everything was covered. There's enough water. But God, in his wisdom, when the flood was over, caused the subterranean areas of the ocean even to to sink down and to accept water into itself and then to move the, the edge of the ocean back. And as another text says, he speaks to the proud waves and says, this far you may come and no farther. He limits the force of the waves. Here you may go and no farther. God measures out also the fresh water, how much of it that we need to stay alive, how much should be sprinkled down from the heavens, as we discussed in an earlier sermon, spritzing it down so that there is a bumper crop. He knows how to give just the right amount of rain for a bumper crop. He also knows how to give rain for not a bumper crop, for crop failure, for drought, or for a flood. Either way, you end up with crop failure. And God wisely chooses how much water in each case. God is wise in directing the path of the storms. The thunderstorms may seem completely random to you. Have you ever seen the flash of a lightning bolt across the sky? And you think, what causes that jagged shape? Why does it go like that? Its every movement is dictated by the wisdom of God. God made and sustains the entire world by daily wisdom. Not even daily wisdom, instantaneous wisdom. He is flying this planet like a skilled pilot, and every moment is ordained by his wise providence. Verse 27, it says, God confirmed and tested wisdom by creation and by his daily sustaining of creation. Everything in creation, everything in daily providence is the display of the wisdom of God. But have you ever driven by some area of, of, of the town your whole life, and then one day you had to walk by it, and you're like, wow, I didn't know that was there. Man, I didn't know that was there either. And look at that. And look, you know, you were blowing by all of these displays of the wisdom of God in providence, and you missed almost all of them. It's okay. In heaven, you get to review them and look at God's mighty works and celebrate his providence in creation, in nature, and in history. And then you get to bring him the praise and glory he deserved all along. As it says in Psalm 111, verse 2 through 4, great are the works of the Lord, They are pondered by all who delight in them. Another translation says studied. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. So we who lack wisdom, we can only find it from one source, and that is God himself. Human ingenuity and scientific accomplishment will never result in wisdom. It will only produce arrogance and tyranny, and materialism, and warfare, and agonies, if not tempered by the wisdom that God alone can give. Now, in verse 28, we come to the crowning moment of the chapter, a definition of true wisdom. Verse 28, and he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. This is 
the beginning of wisdom, we're told in another place. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that leads to shunning evil. Job is going to make this very clear in Job 31. This is his motive for everything he does. He's going to talk about sexual purity in that chapter. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Why? Well, because God sees my ways and counts my every step. That's why. He also treats his servants, men servants and maidservants, with justice and fairness. He is kind to the widow and the orphan and cares for them. Again, why? Because he fears God and he's going to have to give an account to God for how he treated them. As he says in Job 31, 13 and 14, if I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? He fears God. Therefore, he treats people well. This is, this is his ethic. This is the way he lived his life. In order to do this, you have to believe that God exists and that God will bring to judgment all of the people who ever lived, that you're going to have to give an account on the day of judgment for everything you've ever done or didn't do. And so this infinite, majestic God should just tower over you at every moment and give you a sense of an appropriate fear of the Lord that leads to a shunning of evil. No book, I think, in the Bible gives such dramatic language of natural theology as does the book of Job. Later in a few chapters, Job 37, 2 through 5, Elihu says this, listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heavens and sends it to the ends of the earth. And after that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. That's the terror of the Lord. And by faith, we are brought to another place in redemptive history, to the base of Mount Sinai where God descends in fire and gives his law to mankind and causes the ground to shake beneath our feet. And he speaks with such a mighty voice that the people beg that they never hear that voice again lest they die. The fear of the Lord causes us, and he says that in, in Exodus. He says, do not fear. The fear of the Lord has come to keep you from sinning. And so it is a healthy ethic, though inadequate, I'll say it more in a moment, healthy but inadequate, but it's still necessary, that all of you who hear me today and I who speak these words should fear God and shun evil. Just in your mind, be brought to the base of Sinai and see God descending in fire on that mountain and hear him speak because God says it to you. And then go in your mind to the darkness of Gethsemane where Jesus, who feared God like no one has ever feared God, fell to the ground in anticipation of drinking the cup of God's wrath and in terror said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And great drops of blood came out of the pores of his skin. No one feared God like Jesus. That's wisdom. Fear God and shun evil. We need to understand what evil is. The Bible gives us a whole taxonomy of it. Many sin lists, many, 
Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Evil is relentless, it is treacherous, it is devious, it is deceptive. The Bible gives a whole long treatment of what it looks like and how it functions in human society and what happens to the people who do it. Like Ahab and Jezebel and dogs licked up their blood. We, we have whole stories about what happens when you live evil and how God brings judgment. And therefore, salvation in part consists in the people of God coming to hate evil like God does. We come to that point that we fear the Lord and hate evil, shun evil. As it says about Jesus, that God the Father said about his own son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness and therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness perfectly. And you know what's so beautiful? You know what gives me hope? Someday I will love righteousness and hate wickedness as much as Jesus. And so will all of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That'll be the perfection of our salvation, won't it? We need to understand, therefore, that God does not, cannot tolerate sin. We need to realize the day of judgment is coming. God is patient. He does not bring judgment immediately. But he does warn us. And this text, in the end, Job 28, 28, fear the Lord and shun evil is a warning for all of us. Job lived this out. But I want to say to you now, as I already said at the beginning of the sermon, True wisdom goes infinitely beyond that. That negative side is essential, but it's not enough. Christ is God's eternal wisdom. And Christ is infinitely greater than fear God and shun evil. Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I believe, like that parable says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure hidden in a field. Kind of links up with our mining theme. He mined it up and found it. Put it back in, covered it, so no one else would buy it runs and sells everything he had and in, with joy bought that field and that treasure. So there's a fear and a joy aspect of true salvation. And you know what the treasure is? Christ. Christ is the treasure. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the treasure of God's infinite wisdom. And the thing that's exciting, what I've learned in my studies about heaven, is you have only begun to scratch the surface on the infinite majesty of Christ. You'll be studying Christ for the rest of eternity. That's how infinite this treasure is. So there is a fear and hatred and loathing and negative side of true holiness, and then there's an attractive, alluring, positive, delight treasure side. Both of those together are found in Christ, and that's true wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate. It was wise for God to send his son, his only begotten son, into the world to save us, telling us we could not save ourselves. That was wise for God to humble us like that. And it was wise for Christ to be born in humility. 
born of the virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. It was wise for him to grow up in the normal way. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. It was wise for him to be hidden and concealed from Israel until, his 30, until he was about 30 years old. And it was wise for God to send John the Baptist to announce his coming and point at him and say of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then it was wise for Jesus to have his public ministry that consists in perfect words and incredible miracles Rivers of healings, walking on water, stilling the storm, feeding the 5,000, giving multiple evidences of his deity through these miracles. It was wise for him to do that. And the specific miracles he did were very wise. And it was wise for him to talk like no man had ever talked before. It's one of my favorite moments when they send some temple police to arrest Jesus. And they go and listen for a while. That was their first mistake. No, that was a good thing to do. They come back empty-handed and say, no man ever spoke like this man. It was wise for him to, to live a sinless life every day under the law of Moses, under the law of God, perfectly fulfilling the righteous demands of the law of God and winning for all of us a robe of righteousness that he just is willing to give us freely as a gift, the active obedience of Christ, our perfect holiness and righteousness. And it was wise for Jesus every moment to display all of the attributes of God the Father. So he can say to his followers, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But most of all, it was wise for Jesus to die on the cross in our place as a substitute under the wrath of God that we might not have to face the wrath of God but would be freed from our sins forever by simple faith. And it was wise for God to raise Christ up from the dead on the third day, triumphing over death in the grave and giving us a hope of eternal life. And it was wise for him to save us in stages so that we are justified, forgiven, made right in the sight of God by simple faith apart from works, instantaneously, all of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, by faith in the blood of Christ. It was very wise for God to do that. And then it was wise for him to call on us to be holy and to be sanctified and to grow in grace in the knowledge of Christ day by day and to wrestle with our sins by the power of the Spirit and be humbled thereby and to learn how much we needed a Savior and still do and to be humbled by this journey of holiness and to yearn for perfection and holiness And then it will be wise at the end of all things, at the second coming of Christ, in a a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, to change all of the children of God instantaneously and give us perfected resurrection bodies to go with our perfected resurrected souls. The consummation of our salvation will be perfectly wise as well. And then you'll begin your eternal education in the glory of God in earnest. And you'll become wiser and wiser and wiser and wiser for all eternity. But you'll never, get, you'll never be omniscient, for God alone is omniscient. So you will always have more to learn about the infinite majesty of God. Now, where is all of this wisdom found? This wisdom is found in Scripture. It says, and this is a word for you fathers, how it says in 2 Timothy 3.15, how Timothy, from infancy, 
from infancy have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The best thing you fathers could do is sit down with your families, gather them around, and crack open this book night after night and pour out the wisdom of God on your children. Pour it out. But look again what it says. Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You want to know where the wisdom of God in Christ is found? You read about it in this book. You don't see it in nature. You're not going to see it in the wind or the storms or the ostriches or any of that. You find it in Scripture alone. So we have an obligation to the people, the really intelligent, smart PhD people of RDU, to tell them what true wisdom is, to lead them to find it through faith in Christ, to be bold, even this week, in evangelism. Don't be intimidated by them. Esteem it, great. Be interested in their research, that's fine. But change the subject at some point to true wisdom, the wisdom that's found in Christ. And then I'll finish with what I started with. If you are born again, if you're a child of God, your heart right now should be filled with thankfulness that God rescued rescued you out of dark foolishness into the wisdom that he alone can give, and that is Christ. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to study Job 28. I thank you for the song that we sang earlier in which we begged you, show us Christ. Lord, I pray that the way that this chapter has shown us Christ would stick with us, that we would realize that Christ is the wisdom, the true wisdom of God, and that we would give eternal thanks for that wisdom. Lord, I pray for any that came in here as yet unconverted, Pray that now, even now, you would be drawing them by the sovereign spirit to faith in Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.